Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Rachel Sagna-Burma, Associate Professor of English Literature at Swarthmore College, and Laura Heffernan, Associate Professor of English at the University of North Florida. Their book, The Teaching Archive, A New History for Literary Study, was published by the University of Chicago Press this year. We have brought education to its knees. When we value researchers above teachers and teachers only really at all because they provide a service to high-paying customers, when administrative posts can attract even more high earners while teaching staff get underpaid, underinsured, and underappreciated, when the humanities are seen to be scrambling for purpose and oftentimes screeching this purpose or that purpose instead of using the resources of language, which are actually the object of inquiry in the humanities, when we are doing such things as these, then we are bringing education to its knees. And don't you know, education is the basis for knowing one's purpose in life, the basis for understanding how to conduct oneself in a community or in an organization the basis for how to make knowledge and how to use knowledge. Basically, without education, no research, no administration, no knowledge. The teaching archive demonstrates as much, and the book does so through thorough research of an entirely overlooked place, a place that it's really hard to believe it has been overlooked since it's at the center of everyday life in a university, a classroom. However, that seems to be just the problem. We're not seeing what matters. The discipline of English studies certainly has not. When we learn, as we do in the teaching archive, that the history which this discipline has written for itself is far from the mark or completely off base, then you can see just how bad things are in the humanities. Things are good too, though, since English professors like Rachel Bermer and Laura Heffernan do such excellent research as this, the teaching archive, Rachel and Laura debunk the law of English studies history, really a hypothesis never tested, that all great theory and all great books of criticism grew out of research by the lone scholar. The teaching archive also demonstrates that everything that the discipline has explained away as stages in the development of English studies, from the philology days to the bellatrist days, to the scientific methodology days, to new criticism, to ideological criticism, cultural studies, and theory, with a capital T, all of it right down to today, the teaching archive demonstrates that the discipline has always been multifaceted and always been going in multiple directions. The book demonstrates this by laying plain to view the teaching materials of past generations who have already been there. The discipline of English is more complicated than we ever knew. The discipline of English is more important than we seem to realize. Privileged students who can't read or write as they need to. Underprivileged students who are alienated by the curriculum. Inquisitive students whose inquisitiveness is shut up. Bored students who only get more bored. 
advantaged students who don't know their advantage and disadvantaged students who don't know anything else. I think we all know students like these. The teaching archive shows us how all of these students have been helped by good teachers in English. And what is more, all of these students have helped those good teachers become better. Do the names T.S. Eliot, I.A. Richards, Cleanth Brooks mean anything to you? Well, how about if I told you that the sacred wood and practical criticism and the well-wrought urn were products of their teaching? And how about if I added that the people who helped establish a place for African-American literature and Native American literature and the broader category of American literature, how about if I told you that those people were teachers and the establishing that they achieved was achieved from their classrooms? The teaching archive says that teaching has been valued. And Rachel Bermer and Laura Heffernan make the case for making new the discipline of English, perhaps even all of the humanities, as the discipline was of old. This is not nostalgia and not a return to the good old days. The books makes plenty clear that such visions of the past are pure delusion. Rather, in the teaching archive, new from the old can look like this. Adopt no creed, but be thinking always in all directions. Recognize the purpose in the thing you're doing by the importance that that thing carries in people's lives. Teach at your best so that people can learn at their best. This way, education and all that depends on it can rise again. So let's begin today's episode. Rachel Bermer and Laura Heffernan and the Teaching Archive. Rachel, Laura, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you so much, Daniel. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Daniel. This book uh, really impresses it's it, it just it's one of those books that just sort of opens up a whole area that very few people had think thought was there or even thinking about or realized how much it mattered. And I wonder if you could sort of give us the background to it. How did you, let's say, stumble upon this? Um, sure. So we started this book um, many years ago when we were both actually teaching. Uh, the same course. I was teaching it at the University of Pennsylvania and Rachel was teaching it at Swarthmore College just outside of Philadelphia. And uh, it was a course called Close Reading and Its Discontents. And we were teaching about the practice and the history of literary interpretation and close reading and doing a little bit of a um, kind of capsule disciplinary history for students. And we were doing it in the standard way where new criticism appears as this very prominent um, kind of foundation for what we do in classrooms. And so we were teaching Cleonth Brooks and talking about the new critics at mid-century. And as we were teaching the class, our students had a lot of questions that were unexpected, um, that questions that we had sort of, you know, never really considered while we were learning about the history of the discipline. And um, out of that class, Rachel and I started to wonder, well, how, how did the new critics themselves actually teach? We have this sort of idea in English studies that close reading is what we all do in our classrooms, uh, regardless of what we do in our scholarship, that what we're doing in, in class is sitting students down in front of a poem or another work of literature and asking them to read it really carefully, to talk about how the way that it is written affects what it means. Um, and, but this is a kind of unexamined premise, you know, that we all teach this way or have taught this way for a long time. And so we decided to go and look in the archives to see how Cleanth Brooks himself um, taught in his classes at Yale, taught modern poetry, um, taught his students. 
And it was very interesting. That was the first archive we looked at. And, you know, Brooks had been, he had a contract to do a book with Bantam Books that was going to be essentially um, a book of his, his lectures for this modern poetry course. So the meetings with his students in the early 1960s had actually been recorded and transcribed. And they transcribed everything. They transcribed student questions, you know, um, the sort of moments of transition where Brooks was trying to turn to a new topic. Um, and because that, we never again found a, a collection of teaching papers that so closely illuminated every part of the teaching hour. <laughs> um, but that was a very, you know, that because of the quality of that, those transcriptions, we really began to think a lot more about what actually happens in classrooms and how to describe that. And of course, we found that Brooks's classroom teaching, you know, looks different than um, the way that he represents classroom teaching in his published works, like The Well-Wrought Urn. Rachel, did you want to add something or has she covered the ground? I think she's covered the ground. I mean, and when Laura talks about his classroom looking different, students were asking questions about current events. They were tracking down references to artworks in poems by Archibald McLeish that that Brooks was introducing. Um, They were talking, so they were talking about the history the context, connecting this history of modern poetry to the present moment, you know, as well as um, um, close reading in snippets and thinking evaluatively. One of the most illuminating moments for us in those lectures was Cleanth Brooks's teaching of Marianne Moore, who he was really teaching as an example of someone who was an interesting writer um, with all her footnotes and her living in Brooklyn and her being a librarian in his account, but not a great poet or even a good poet. Um, But he gave a lot of space to Marianne Moore in that class. And so that for us was a real moment of, okay, Cleonth Brooks's real classroom is not all transcendent close readings of already clearly canonical texts. He's showing his students the process of the creation of the literary. He's showing his students what the contemporary literary scene looks like. And this surfaces again and again in the different chapters. I mean, when we see T.S. Eliot going through and finding fragments of biography wherever so that he can teach then his next class uh, with the extension school or uh, when we see also one of the really quite interesting figures who I hadn't even been aware of, Caroline Spurgeon, um, descending into the uh, archives at the British Museum with basically freshmen to do original research during the First World War. Uh, Yeah, we get a a view of a classroom that is, uh, well, at least non-conventional, right? (laughs) Yes, definitely. And I mean, that was, so once we looked at the Brooks Archive, we started to think, well, this is really interesting. You know, let's go see, (laughs) let's go see how everybody (laughs) else taught. And, um, you know, we started to look as well for um, collections that, would give us a sense of how people had taught at non-elite institutions, at access-oriented institutions, and so on. Um, Because the disciplinary histories that we've all read do tend to be kind of overwhelmingly focused on research universities and Ivy League schools in the U.S. um, or Oxford and Cambridge. And so one of the things that we discovered, you know, looking at how 
T.S. Eliot was teaching in the Extension School for the University of London or how Caroline Spurgeon was teaching in the same institution or at Bedford Women's College was that, you know, there had been this sort of sense in disciplinary history that close reading um, and the new critics really kind of hit upon a very successful um, mode of undergraduate pedagogy. And that the historicist scholars who really, you know, kind of did a lot of manuscript research or, you know, tracked down every review of, you know, every piece of writing about Chaucer in the 18th century, things like that, that they were not good undergraduate teachers, that they, you know, were kind of left without any account of literature's value and any practice of making students acquainted with it. Um, And that was a real, you know, truism in disciplinary history that was immediately kind of debunked by what we found in the archives. Because what we found was this really incredible history of people teaching what looked to us like methods for graduate study. You know, working with, you know, manuscripts in the British Library is something that neither Rachel nor I would have done until graduate school. But here you have it, you know, here you have extension school students, working class adults who didn't have a degree and weren't planning to get one, engaging in this kind of scholarly um, research with Caroline Spurgeon as part of a course that they were taking for beginning students. So that was a really compelling part of the history that we found when we, you know, is, is the, the long history of these other modes of mm-hmm. undergraduate pedagogy that really have not been, we've just assumed that they don't exist or that they're failed models um, that they've failed to engage students' uh, attention or interest. Um, and what we found really suggested the opposite. It's fu- And it's funny that we think that these are failed models when we have our kind of disciplinary history researcher hats on, because I think so many of us in literary studies do practice <laughs> these kinds of models in the classroom, you know? So it's such a powerful devaluation of teaching and our own very own classroom experiences in the modern research university and in contemporary higher education that can make us unable to take on board the evidence of our own classrooms and the sense that, of course, our own classrooms also have rich histories and our practices don't come from nowhere. This brings me to uh, very early on the book, it's actually page two, to one of the statements that just jumps out at you. And the book goes on to prove it true. I'm just going to quote, if it were possible to assemble all the teaching archive, all the syllabuses, all the handouts, reading lists, lecture notes, student papers, exams, it would constitute a much larger and more interesting record than the famous monographs and seminal articles that usually represent the history of literary study. Now that was one of those, whoa, (laughs) moments very early on in the book. And as I said, chapter for chapter, you see indeed how this pans out. Um, I, I wonder uh, at what moment did you realize that that was the case? That this this teaching archive was that vital and important. Rachel, do you have I, a good? Yeah, um, it might have been when we. The canonical moment would be when we realized how much of T. S. Eliot's "The Sacred Wood." came out of, right, the Sacred Wood being this book that we really think about as setting the canon for a lot of the 20th century in many ways. And it might have been when we fully were able to take on board how much of that book 
really came out of T.S. Eliot's London classroom um, for working class students. And it took us a while to really realize how much of that classroom was inside the sacred wood. Um, Again, just because we hadn't been trained with the tools to think about that, or we hadn't really, you know, had, had had a way of thinking about how closely and granularly classrooms and canonical works of literary criticism could be related. So that would be one example. And that didn't happen right away when we looked at Eliot's syllabi. It, it kind of happened afterwards as we tried to process it in the context of what we knew about Eliot's work in the early 20th century. But Laura, there are, there are other moments that we could give too. Yeah, I think, you know, pretty much every collection we went to look at, even the ones that didn't really make it into the book in the end, you always found in every single class a surprising um, couple of titles where, that you were really just sort of like, huh, they're teaching that? I wonder why. <laughs> and um, also a pretty surprising just set of methods, because when you're thinking about and looking through the full classroom hour and... Um, you know, and thinking about the give and take of the class, the space of the classroom, you see a much more kind of flexible and interesting set of tools that, that teacher scholars are using. So pretty much everywhere we went felt astonishing to us and, you know, it demanded kind of further research into that person's scholarship and how they had been trained and what the, um, what the kind of, institutional context for their teaching were, as in the case of Elliot at the extension school. Um, and so, you know, it, it really just felt like everything was so interesting and so underrepresented. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started to try to kind of build up an alternative narrative history of the 20th century. Um, but I'm certain that pretty much anybody else who does similar research will find you know, different pathways than we did. Mm-hmm. And we'll have other kinds of insights. Um, and I think, you know, the last thing I'll just say about this is that disciplinary history was really ripe for, has been ripe for expansion for a while, because we, we, we tend to really tell this very unified story about what our practices have been in literary study. And it's not a very, it hasn't been challenged very much um, in the last several decades. Um, and, and it's a, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty thin story. It's a, it's a kind of pendulum swing sort of story where, you know, we trade off in different generations between studying literature in a historicist or contextualist kind of way and studying literature in a formalist um, kind of evaluative mode. And um, it's not easy to imagine that, I mean, it's not difficult to imagine that if you think about all of the classrooms that were operating in that generational moment, that it's virtually impossible to kind of unify them into these methodological, um, you know, sort of hegemonic eras. Um, so it's very, you know, it's ev- pretty much everywhere we turned, we were sort of like, oh, well, that's not what we were expecting. <laughs> that's not what anyone's expecting. <laughs> That's one of the yeah. things in the book that, uh, if I just might add, that's one of the things in the book that is, you know, the sign that some important research has been done, in my opinion, because it shows us something that, in a way, we should have thought, but we needed the evidence to see it. We needed somebody to come at it from that perspective. You know, just this thing that you're saying, 
I mean, how could it have been that throughout the entire 1950s, everybody was new critical? You know, I mean, it just, it just you know, I mean, seriously, <laughs> but we, that. we were all buying that, you know, and, 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 yeah. this, and this brings me to that wonderful, uh, the sentence, probably one of my favorite sentences in the entire book, disciplinary historians of English have by and large declined to research in their field. And I just think that that's such a heavy uh, use of the word research. I mean that in a very good way because you go then and do the most detailed and thorough of research to back up what you're talking about. And, and that's not done that way in English studies. Yeah. Um, that's a, um, yeah, that was a sort of key moment for us. And, you know, of course, it's not entirely true that that no one researches. I mean, Gerald Graff's Professing Literature is absolutely a researched book, um, but his particular set of documents that he's looking at do tend to be um, published works or or administrative and institutional um, documents. Right. So, um, yeah, so we, I mean, and I think the other thing for us that's really important is that so, for example, in, we have this chapter on Josephine Miles, who taught English 1A at Berkeley for about four decades. So she taught, you know, essentially freshman composition, first year writing. And um, it's very clear when you go and look at her, her papers that teaching composition and particularly teaching students how to write sentences had a tremendous impact on her really, really innovative quantitative scholarship and in her entire vision of what poetry is and does and what the history of it has been. And I think, you know, as Rachel has said, you know, said earlier, it's, we all understand this intuitively that the classroom teaching we do, however devalued it is, however kind of, you know, general education-y it is, however kind of basic it is, it always has an impact on our intellectual development and on what we're interested in, and so on. And, you know, we've come to accept this idea that a lot of institutions now, you know, whether they know it or not, propose, which is that teaching and research are utterly separate activities. They're so separate that universities now hire people just to teach, right, adjunct instructors, and give them no support or funding for their scholarship. Um, But there's no way to really sever the link and, you know, recovering the story of how um, all of our classroom teaching has built the, the key and core and interesting ideas in our discipline is really vital right now. Yeah. I think, Oh, sorry. I was thinking about something that Laura had said earlier too, which is that how it's impossible to have a unifying story of all of these classrooms because there are so many practices and so much difference. And I think and there are many reasons for that. But another reason is that uh, English professors have been thinking about the learning needs of their students for a very long time. And their students are all different <laughs> from each other, right? And the character of the composition of a classroom is really different from institution to institution, as we show in some examples in our book. Um, so we've also just accepted this story that it's only, you know, until yesterday that we have thought about the particular learning needs of our students as individuals and a group, right? And that we've only really started thinking about that because we're being told to do this by experts in teaching or by university administrations competing for students in a crowded 
marketplace. Um, but that's just not true. And again, experientially, we know that's not true. We've just been unable to take that experience to the history of our own discipline. And I think that that's also with so many of the examples in the book, and as as both of you have been saying now, uh, the people who aren't necessarily, you know, the graduate students or the postdocs, the people who are in, um, Josephine Miles is a perfect example, you know, first year composition. I mean, that was her focus. She saw that as one of the, you know, foundational courses and what she was doing. They are, in a sense, um, as you say, teaching the teachers, in a sense, because if you step in front of a whole bunch of people who are inside of your discipline, you have the lingo, you have all the assumptions, you know exactly what you can refer to and what you can't refer to and how you're going to talk about it. You're, you're comfortable inside of the thinking of your discipline. Whereas if you're dealing with people who may be non-majors, people who might switch mm-hmm. in their sophomore year into something totally different or are just simply new at college, you're suddenly in a territory where there are no assumptions and everything needs to be explained or thought through again. You get questions like, so what's the novel? <laughs> and then you're like, good God. No, don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's just so interesting, I mean, how there are a lot of things that just don't really appear in the scholarship because they don't need to, they've been done. It doesn't need to be discussed again, but they have to be kind of trotted out every semester with your students. And I think, for example, a really easy example is authorial biography, which, you know, I think most of us in our scholarship, you know, don't spend a lot of time or any time really talking about authorial biography. But of course, in classrooms, it's a different matter. And students, are, particularly beginning students, are often really curious about who this writer was and how they came to write and how they had access to the books that they read before they became a writer. Um, and that was something that we found again and again as well, that that kind of mode of teaching literature by um, sort of telling the historical and biographical story of how it came to be written. Mm-hmm was a really common aspect of many of the classrooms that we looked at. Um, And I think, you know, to make a second point about this, one of the reasons that the new critics have been so dominant, I think, in our imagination of how we have taught in the past and what our core um, pedagogical modes are, is that they're credited with really kind of democratizing literature, with kind of breaking down Uh, for students, exactly what a poem is and what distinguishes a poem from other kinds of writing and what's valuable about poetry and why you should spend any time at all reading it and what what aesthetic experience is and how it feels different to read a poem than it feels to read the bus schedule. (laughs) But the, um, but, you know, we found that the new criticism by mid-century was only the latest in many waves of a very, democratizing pedagogical methods. And people were really talking and theorizing the ways that their particular classroom methods in the 1900s or 19-teens or 1920s or 1930s um, was able to reach students and really give them a sense of the basics and give them a feel for critical reading and mm-hmm. to kind of elevate them um, into, the, into the upper echelons of you know, literary criticism. Right. And part of that democratizing impulse that really doesn't get attended to when we talk about new criticism and the classroom most of the time is the sense to which 
breaking down the elements of literature is also part of imagining students as writers, as creators of literature, and that kind of relationship between criticism and creative writing, which today we think of as different parts of a warring English department or as separate programs, is really part of the imagination in many, many of these classrooms, that you're learning not just to take a poem apart and understand it, but you're learning, as in Miles' classroom, what the parts of a sentence are or the parts of a poem are so that you might make those choices yourself when you write a paragraph or a poem. And this uh, comes to the, let's say, the flip side of this idea that teaching clearly has a lot to do with research, and uh, that case is made perfectly clear in the book, but that teaching in itself is valuable for knowledge and for any discipline to continue to thrive or uh, find new ground, if you like. And it, it, and it starts to make you wonder about the pedagogies that we follow, because very often when I look uh, into education studies or pedagogical literature, you find there assumptions or presumptions about learners that might not really mesh always with the practice that we have. Uh, just as we began talking about, you know, bringing people into the archives and doing the sort of work that, you know, you must save for far later in their degree. They don't understand what they're doing. Uh, maybe they do. Uh, biologists are brought very early right into the lab, aren't they? Yeah. No, exactly. I think that for us, one of the really kind of important pieces of early research we did was on T.S. Eliot and Spurgeon and other people who taught um, in the University of London Extension School. And Eliot taught that three-year um, tutorial course. So and these tutorial courses around World War I were modeled on the Workers' Educational Association's um, ideas for how a tutorial should be run. And one of their key aspects was that um, – you know, they believed that universities like Oxford and Cambridge needed um, needed students like them more than they needed the accreditation or support or authority of universities like Oxford and Cambridge. And that by having these tutorial courses in which students and their tutor would really be in a truly um, kind of democratic situation in which the tutor was also a student and the students were also tutors, that this promise to really expand um, the ways that these universities taught England's national history, England's economic history, um, and even eventually fields like philosophy and literature. And I think that, you know, again, sort of intuitively in classrooms, you find that it's, it's, it's very often the case, I think, that instructors kind of know this and they know that their students um, have things to teach them as well. And are not simply, you know, there to be kind of empty vessels of content instruction, um, which is the model that I have seen mm -hmm. in in some, uh, you know, as you say, kind of education research or pedagogy journals. Yeah, I think also you mentioned biologists bringing students into the lab in Bio 101, and that's true. But there's also an interesting there's more interesting work to be done and an interesting co comparison to be made between, say, the composition classroom and the bio 101 classroom because the structures of knowledge and what constitutes a contribution to knowledge in those two disciplines, literature and biology, is so different. So while you do bring students into the lab in first-year biology, students in first-year biology probably in most cases don't have the chance to make a contribution 
to knowledge in biology. That's just kind of a, it's kind of a hypothesis. I think I don't know enough about, about this and I haven't talked to enough biologists yet, but we were talking to a biology teacher at Grinnell, Laura and I were a few weeks ago about this topic. And he said, yeah, there is a difference. Like we try to give our students a situation in which they can have the experience of what it was like to make knowledge in biology. But it seems like literature classrooms are different because there are, there are less, uh, knowledge is less hierarchized and there are more opportunities for a student in a first year literature class to make a contribution to knowledge. Uh, we don't, I, I just think that's a, that's a really interesting area of potential inquiry is talking to teachers, teachers talking across the sciences and the humanities to think about how this differs in different classrooms and, and different, um, disciplines. Well, one one thing I would add there, I, I work in a writing program primarily in the uh, micro, uh, molecular biosciences, and essentially uh, it's made clear even to the people working on their masters that um, every lab hand is doing original research and that the numbers and results that they're creating are unique. And it's actually more common than not that some of these things are contributing to the PIs, the uh, principal investigators' publications over the next, say, five to six years. So the likelihood that uh, maybe the full extent of it won't be, um, you know, the the student won't be aware of the full extent of their contribution because they may not understand the entire full connection within that uh, field of research in biology, yet they are kind of aware that, you know, they're doing biology right now. And I think, as you say about, you know, composition class and the originality that could be possible there, um, I, I love what you say, for instance, about the connection between criticism and, and, and creativity and, and the fact that, you know, you, you, you enter into an English studies program also because you write and you read. I mean, these are like, the, <laughs> these are the basics. I know that that's why I had taken <laughs> it up. I, th- I thought that that was, you know, and then, and then you see some of the things that are going on, some of the things that are being published, and you start to wonder, well, apparently everyone doesn't look at it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were a couple, one of the chapters in the book that's on um, I.A. Richards and, um, and also Edith Rickert, who taught around the same time at the University of Chicago, is about that kind of lab model that you describe um, and its importance in the field of, of literary study. Um, we, and you know, the, the fact that this kind of approach has a long history in literary study and isn't necessarily kind of borrowed from the lab sciences themselves, but there was, you know, both Richards and Rickert were running these big classroom labs where students were essentially creating data or collecting data about either literary texts or their own responses to literary texts. And then there was really a sense, I think, um, in the way that you describe that the students had that all of these contributions um, would be collected, right, and become part of this this bigger project led by kind of a PI, you know, that would make a contribution to knowledge at some level. Um, did you want to add to that, Rachel? I sort of lost my train. Well, no, no, I think, no, I actually, yes, I, because I think that vision is also the vision of literary history that so many of our figures have, right? So the vision of how students in a classroom or a classroom lab contribute, even if even in small ways, sometimes in big ways, but also in small ways that might not be able to be recorded or might be recorded in any ways is also 
a bit of a sense of the history of literary creation, right, that we get in many of these classrooms, Mm -hmm. that these teachers are teaching about the history of how books come to be made, of how a novel comes to be written. And they're often, they're not, right, about genius and creativity. Primarily, they're about sources and literary cultures and the, the collaborative work two playwrights are doing together and the San Francisco, San Francisco scene that a poem comes out of, right? Josephine Miles trying to help her students create, like figure out what contemporary literary culture is like in their moment in the 1940s or 1950s. So those are, those are two parallel scenes, the scene of the classroom and the scene of the creation of the literary work that is at the center of study, I think. Yeah, as Miles said, she's studying poetry, not poems. Right. Yeah, one of the main effects of this seems to be, which comes out particularly with Miles or with uh, Richards and, and Rickert, as you say, is that, um, again, to get back to uh, pedagogy, that their commitment wasn't to essentially, as we would see it, let's say, make literary scholars, you, you say, not a pedagogical commitment to uh, textual, textual exegesis, but to the idea that a classroom was a site of an ever-changing and ever-refining experimentation, essentially a teaching method, yeah, so that mm-hmm. people could be taught how to think on their own, reflect on their own. Um, I think the, the wonderful way that you put it is to bring about some sort of a collective liberatory disillusionment. A group refusal, I'm going to go on, I'm going because this is great. I'm going to go- <laughs> a group refusal to engage in the meaningless talk that papers over individual uncertainty, personal response, and I would personally add also disciplinary training or disciplinary identity, where literally again, everything is game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was also a really illuminating moment from us. That quote is from the Richards chapter. And, you know, Richards wrote Practical Criticism, which like Cleanth Brooks's The Well-Rod Urn is a book that people talk about a lot in disciplinary history. But no one, you know, very few people had gone to look at Richards's teaching papers. And it was, you know, quite striking to realize that he ran those practical criticism experiments again and again and again and again. And that really the running of the experiment was itself the point you know, that even beyond his publication of that book. um, And if you read the end of that book, he's really essentially trying to encourage other teachers, including K through 12 teachers, to do the same thing, to collect from their students exactly what their responses to literature had been, and then to kind of review them together, to kind of close read the responses as a group in order to, you know, kind of more fully examine um, how everyone is interpreting and to to massage out, you know, together the the errors or the inconsistencies. But it, it, it's, again, it's not about the finished, you know, kind of product or the contribution to knowledge. It's about the practice of doing that right. collectively um, and together. And that that for Richards is really the best way that it has to be in, within this classroom scene that See, really, yeah, it, it requires all the, everyone together. It right. seems like such a commitment to teaching, though. That's how it comes across to me anyway, because he says, uh, or it makes me think anyway, you know, that you've got students talking about what they think more than they are talking about any putative subject matter. You know, the, as you say again and again, or, or his notes make clear, you know, it's the students who are actually the center of attention. St- the, the quotations that they give about a, a poem, the response to somebody else's response are what they're focusing on. And yeah. That is really what an administration would 
I would say most often become suspicious of because, well, where's the survey class? Where's the, um, right. you know, the content knowledge? In a <laughs> sense, this would be probably like a biology lab where it's not the results they're interested, but in the lab methods. And yet, actually, that matters. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, where's the content and where's the thing that can be pre-recorded, and where's the thing that can be slotted into a course of study that is replicable and it's just not there in any of these classrooms because they're in the business of not just as Laura, as Laura said not just of trying to figure out what's inside the poem but of trying to illuminate how people together in a classroom bring out or make the meaning of a literary work I mean you see this it's also it seems it's Another scene at the other end of the 20th century from Richards's classrooms are Simon or J. Ortiz's classrooms, where he's iterating over and over again in slightly different forms what it might mean for his students at Marin College Community, Marin County Community College, who are going to go on to become teachers and social workers um, and government employees and all kinds of things, like what it might mean for all those people to make what Native American, write a history of Native American literature together, to imagine what an intro or a survey of Native American literature might be in the 1970s. So it feels urgent in all these classrooms in, in very different ways. One way that it felt very urgent to me was, in, uh, again, to go back to Josephine Miles in her classroom, where, as you were saying, with with predication in one of her notes, uh, and I've written this down for myself because I, as running a writing program, I just thought this was brilliant. She writes, writing equals sign thinking. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then follows up with, we can do nothing with facts if we don't have ideas about the facts. And this is one of those central ideas that she's constantly working on. And this is somebody who, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later would get letters from, you know, former students just saying, you changed my life. You, you changed <laughs> the way I do things. <laughs> I mean, do we need more proof that, you know, uh, there is value in this sort of teaching? Yes. And we should, we should say, you know, this book is not necessarily about good teachers. Um, <laughs> but, but in Miles's case, it seems quite clear that she was in fact a very good teacher. Um, and, um, you know, th that, Oh, I sort of lost my train of thought there. <laughs> Rachel, do you well, want to continue? She was a really good teacher, but that, a, that that no one's a good teacher all the time. So right in some ways, Miles is obviously a stunning teacher, but you look at her teaching notes and some days, you know, they're quick scribbles, just like with students' names of who she's going to call on in the workshop to talk about their sentences, or she's jotted down for, you know, the fifth time she's teaching English 1A, the book she's going to go have her students buy. So the contingency, right, not that she hasn't prepared her work and not that she's not deeply committed to teaching, but it gives you a sense of how the contingency of our own teaching and the just barely keeping up of our own teaching, right, isn't a preparation or a misstep. It's part of the, it's part of the teaching. And then we have other, there are other teachers that both are, that are in the book and that are not in the book who are not mostly what we see is not their shining genius moments really, which would really again be mostly about them, the teachers, but not about the classroom or the students or the class as a collective. Um, but we see the day-to-dayness of the classroom and how that builds an understanding of the world and of literature. 
that, you know, that is just about duration and being together around a text. It can't always be about one illuminating insight after another. Does that kind of? Yeah, exactly. What, what, as I said before, one of the figures who really caught my attention was uh, Caroline Spurgeon. Was, was that on purpose that you opened up with? Oh, no, well, it was probably because of the chronology, uh, chronology wasn't it? You, it was you sort began. of about the chronology, but we actually, I mean, we could have opened with Elliot, but we really, you know, we made a decision to open with Spurgeon in a way, um, because Spurgeon is really our imagination of a counterfactual archive. If everybody had preserved their notes the way Spurgeon had, if everybody had been so um, kind of conscious of the value of their teaching, at least in the material form, those leather-bound books that she bound all her own teaching notes and her notes from classes that she'd taken, that was kind of the idea there's a wonderful picture of that in the book too. You get to really get a sense of how nice this these bound volumes are. <laughs> yeah, and the other, I mean, her archive is beautiful. Um, you know, we first, you know, learned about her because she was in the University of London Extension School papers because um, she taught there as well. But she did most of her teaching at Bedford College for Women, and she was herself educated at the University of London, and then went to Paris for her doctorate and. Those teaching notebooks, you know, they're so interesting. As Rachel says, they're they're beautifully bound, and they they're they're really preserved with this sense that someone else might use them later. And if you look at her notebooks that she kept from when she was a student, learning from people like W. P. Kerr at the University of London, you can really see that she's taking passages from Kerr's lectures and reusing them in her lectures, and that's not really like a plagiarism or anything like that. It's in fact, you know, a kind of mode that we all engage in here or there where aspects of our training or even particular interpretations or close readings of passages that we were taught reemerge later in our classrooms. And that too, for us, was a really important um, insight about the continuities in the discipline that kind of undergird these big methodological battles where, you know, ground seems to shift and there's a new way of reading um, but that really on an individual level, there is this kind of replicability of, um, of, you know, your own training, and then you're passing that on to your students and they go on, maybe not to be English professors, but to be all mm -hmm. sorts of other things. And we became really interested in those genealogies. And that, that, that course of hers, the, the art of reading, and you, you talk about training, um, I mean, it's so meticulous and yet so sensible. Um, again, just a brief quote from her. This is from her notes. Yeah. If all the time you are reading, you keep coordinating your knowledge, grouping it, relating it, keeping a clear thread of the main principles, you'll be able to mount above it and not allow it to mount above you and oppress you. And then you think... And and then she goes on to emphasize this idea that note taking is note taking, but that's also note taking with value judgment added. So this constant reflection, constant, you know, mm -hmm. uh, bringing mm -hmm. in an order into what it is that's out there in the world of text. And then then you start to wonder. I mean, I know I got slightly frightened. I like God. I don't even think I could teach a course like that. <laughs> that's, I mean, never mind if our students can do that today. But I mean, what better ability though? Could actually literary <laughs> studies pass on throughout the university, if you like? Um, you know, I always have found that the best literary research out there has been the close ed editorial work, the annotative work, the work that showed this sort of level of reading. And 
it doesn't have to be that everyone goes on to do that sort of work, but I mean, to have that skill in reading, which translates then quite easily into writing is, is just phenomenal. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. And that Spurgeon chapter we've heard from other people and, you know, we've done this ourselves. I mean, she had her students create their own personal indexes to something that they were reading and she modeled her own index of Ruskin's unto this last and showed them kind of how you take notes on the book and then how you transform that into a general index, but then how you transform it into an index that represents hierarchically what your interests in the book are. And, um, we know several mm -hmm. people who have just stolen that assignment <laughs> and uh, given it to their students. And, yeah. you know, that was the other kind of fun thing about the book is that we did find all these things that were that were quite old, but, you know, we were sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I mean, especially in the Miles chapter where she's teaching first year writing. I mean, I teach first year writing all the time and immediately started, you know, adapting um, some of her catchphrases or principles and so on. Yeah, I mean, one really, when you look at the Miles archive, you just want to start your composition teaching from scratch <laughs> and just say, oh, this is the way. There's so many there are practices here that we all share already, but her her version of it, just the at the level of the sentence, thinking about how predication, it's what you do to make sense of data, it was so, so helpful in my own classroom. And I, I was stopped short by um, when sh she wrote also, again, somewhere in her notes, I forget exactly where, but she writes... We have failed to relate writing to other disciplines. Now, this is very important for us mm. as a, you know, an English department in the university. I go on. We've taught it too separately. We need to get geographers and astronomers. We need to make the language of their discipline come alive for them and their own writing. And I just thought there is no higher goal for a writing across the disciplines or a writing in the disciplines program, is there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's. That's that's absolutely right, and um, and it's interesting for me that Miles has this really, you know, compelling account of what writing across the disciplines should look like. At the same time that her own composition pedagogy is so deeply embedded in in literary history and specifically poetic history, mm -hmm. you know, she's really thinking about poems and poetry. Um, at the same, and that 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 that's completely linked to this very broad-minded sense of what composition is and and can do. You see, it and what is it that really? The, oh. Sorry, I was just going to follow up. What is no, it no, that no, the link up. is? Why 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 is it that she sees a poem as valuable to, as she says, the geographer or the astronomer? What what is it that she's noticing? Do you think? Well, I think, you know, Miles is really thinking about poetry in almost in quantitative terms. So she's studying different eras of poetry and thinking about essentially their nouns, their verbs, their adjectives, and so on, and thinking about the relationship between those things and whether, you know, poetry of any given era tends to be kind of phrasal with lots of adjectives, um, <clears throat> Uh, or sorry, clausal with lots, lots, or clausal, you know, with lots of subordinating clauses and so on. And so she's really, I think, essentially thinking about how poets move their objects of study around grammatically, and that that corresponds to that era and how poets relate to their world and the objects within it. And so, for example, when she was reading um, the poetry of mid-century and the literary criticism of mid-century, she was noting that this was seemed to be an era in which poets were having kind of almost a crisis around whether the things they were studied were inventions of their own mind 
and um, and I think that you can really once you start to think about poetry in those terms as really a record of uh, of different ways that humans have throughout the past related to the objects of the world around them, you know, that is such a broad and compelling framework to talk about everything from philosophy to biology. You know, it's, it's very um, kind of renaissance in some ways. Mm-hmm. And her book Fields of Learning is in some ways about that. She has this poem about, history textbooks and a poem about chemistry labs and a poem about anthropology and a poem also about her own office hours. And so even in her own poetry, she's sort of thinking through the languages and the disciplinary structures through which other disciplines in the university make their own forms of knowledge. One uh, other area that I'd like to just brush uh, upon, if we could, is uh, the idea of research in the university, teaching in the university, and now the modern field of higher education, uh, you you dedicate the conclusion to bringing your research into, um, let's say, our practice at the moment and uh, the way that we have to teach, the, the sorts of jobs that we have, the conditions that we work under. And it's made very clear that the findings that you have over the past century are relevant to today. And and, I, and one point that I would bring up is, for example, again, back to T.S. Eliot and the extension schools, where um, they had this, as you said, collaborative approach, Yeah, that this is mm-hmm. not merely about dissemination of knowledge, but it's about, you know, um, I think the quote was that the people in the classes, the people who compose them, as it was put, yeah, this is a slightly older English, mm-hmm. <laughs> that it is indeed relative to their common life. And um, their, their rejection, for instance, of uh, grading or awards or prizes that they felt that, you know, um, the development that goes on in a tutorial is meant to be a personal and life relevant one and not be, you know, assessed in that sense. And it made me immediately think of, you know, a typical writing center sort of setup where that's normal, you know, um, that mm-hmm. you, you're not faced typically in, in a writing center or in a writing program, even with grades and assessment and so on, because that's not the point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not the point in most classrooms, you know, it's not the point in most classrooms either, even if you don't see that in the structure, the way you might see it immediately in a writing program. But I mean, it's just striking to us how many of the kinds of assignments and conversations and structures around learning in these classrooms over the whole 20th century really correspond to the things that, at least at my institution, I'm often told are very high value practices, right, that we have to learn to do for our students, right, that it's an upper level kind of research seminar, and that that is, I think, at many institutions, rare, right, but high value. And we need to struggle to newly incorporate these into our work. And we really, but you see that in the whole history already, right? You see that that's already a part of literary studies, disciplinary knowledge about teaching practices. Yeah, those things like student-centered pedagogy or undergraduate research, or even kind of innovative, supposedly innovative teaching techniques, like turning mm-hmm. your class into a laboratory or flipping it, you know, and so on and so forth. Those were all things that we found, um, you know, 
in archives and teaching papers that were a century old. And so, you know, it's really important, I think, to try to understand why this long history of pedagogy in English and the sense that we really do have a good um, longstanding set of practices, why we're being told in a contemporary <laughs> administrated university that we have to go to a lunch hour session to learn how to do those things or that, um, you know, that these are kind of professionalizing webinars offered to experienced teachers. And I think there's a real, you know, teaching has long been devalued um, in certain kinds of higher educational institutions, but I think we're at a real crisis point mm-hmm. of it um, now. And adjunctification is probably the biggest symptom of this, that there's this sense that it's, you know, there's become this sense that it's completely fine to employ a third of your workforce in a um, in a contingent way and to have them teach courses that are largely gen ed courses um, for beginning students and that there's no problem around that. Um, Mm -hmm. But of course there are many, many problems around that. Um, And so we do in the end of the book, try to indicate some of the ways that recapturing this history um, is really important for a contemporary landscape um, in which essentially many aspects of our profession are under serious threat. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me sometimes to be a question of definitional word usage. I mean, you brought up a number of the key phrases in uh, higher education uh, pedagogy, so learner-centered, for instance. And when an administration, I think, has that in mind, they're thinking maybe in a slightly different format. They want it measurable and so on. And when you go and then give them proper learner-centered, like maybe (laughs) Caroline Spurgeon would have, it's not really to their taste. That's not the way they want it. (laughs) (laughs) Which kind of, you know, is a contradiction in itself. I mean, learner-centered is learner-centered, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) how much much are we going to bend this? Um, But uh, sure, yeah, the the final chapter, though, does make uh, a strong case for, uh, as Laura, you were just saying, the fact that we've, we've entered a place of Defunding, state defunding, private fundraising, student debt profiteering. We've got people in adjunct positions. Uh, as you go on to say, the, the general stratification of higher education, right, has made it so that the entire project of the humanities is put into question. And yet the entire book shows a century or more worth of the value of it. And um, I, I wonder what it is that's you would you would state if you, if you could in a sort of elevator speech that makes it clear that we need to follow up with english studies in this fashion well i think i think in some ways the evidence is there right the evidence for how central teaching has been the evidence for what all that students have learned and daniel as you opened our conversation with, like all students have learned from classrooms. And I think in some ways, you know, in some ways we do hope, you know, there's a dream, an administrator, a university administrator might read this book and think twice about cutting yet again, right, human funding in a college of arts and humanities, or think yet again about paying teachers only the bare minimum of what you can pay them in order to teach literature or to teach composition. But it's really aimed at other professors, other teachers at the university in literary studies and outside literary studies. Like, let's at least stop believing what we're told 
about how bad our teaching is. And let's at least stop letting, letting teaching split us from one another, right? I mean, I think that's another thing the book shows is that we all are doing this kind of labor together and we could all value it together rather than being divided by it. My, my dog agrees, as you can hear in the background. <laughs> I'll, just say, <laughs> I'll just say, too, really quickly, I mean, we're, we're speaking mostly in the American context in the conclusion, um, because that's, you know, the context in which we live and work. But there is developing in the U.S. like a very clear kind of two-tier system of higher education in which uh, schools that are wealthy and funded can continue to run kind of deep and um, expansive liberal arts education and curriculum, um, but that schools that are state-funded in states like mine, for example, I teach in Florida, where our school actually loses points on the metric for state funding when students major in English as opposed to other disciplines that are incentivized by the state. Um, so there is this real sense right now that, you know, the ability to read books carefully, to learn um, how to think critically, to learn how to write well, and to conceive of those things as part of a larger life um, is under threat for the majority of American students. And one of the things our book really tries to do is to recover how much of those, you know, how many of those students have participated in the making of this discipline that is now um you know, being taken away from them, essentially. And so our intellectual histories, our disciplinary histories need really now to kind of incorporate the sorts mm -hmm. of institutions um, where these places, where these, where these majors are under threat, incorporate them into the history mm -hmm. and show in really material ways as we do that, that those students at those schools helped to um, make some of the core concepts and methods in our, in our discipline. Well, Rachel and Laura, you've been very generous with your time. I'd, I'd like uh, just one last uh, brief question, if I might. You have given us here the teaching archive, a look through history. I wonder if a sort of companion volume could be made where it was synchronous, where we got to look across the present moment and the archive wasn't so dusty and perhaps very recoverable. Yes. I mean, we've been thinking about that a lot in many forms. I mean, so we're kind of interested in some of these more like things like the open syllabus project and like big collections of syllabi as they might relate to people's more concrete everyday experience. But I mean, we've also been playing around with the idea, like, like all of us um, for a podcast where we would go into someone else's classroom metaphorically and think about uh, what they're teaching at their particular institution with their uh, students looks like, but also ask about what their, like the recent history of teaching, what the classrooms that most formed them have looked like. So we are interested maybe, maybe in some form of continuing to investigate that in a more expansive way. Okay, well, thank you very much. That is Rachel Burma and Laura Heffernan. And their book, The Teaching Archive, A New History for Literary Study, is out this year with the University of Chicago Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Rachel and Laura. Goodbye. Thanks so much, Daniel. Take thank care. you, Daniel. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>